Let's pray and ask the Lord to, to bless his word. God, we want to, uh, again, hear from you tonight. We want to know what you would say to us. And so we pray that you would give us hungry ears and open hearts, <clears throat> that we would uh, honor you and worship you by the attention that we give to your word. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. So, Lord willing, we are going to make it through the entire book of 2 Peter tonight. And 2 Peter is uh, just an amazing book, and I I love it on so many levels. But, um, you know, we talked about last week and the week, well, two weeks ago and three weeks ago, I guess. Um, You know, as soon as you say Peter, there's sort of a a statement. There's, There's a preface to the book just in knowing the author, because this is... Simon Peter, this is the, the disciple who Jesus called, the man who was a fisherman. Jesus said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. This is the guy who uh, had a chance to watch more prophecy be fulfilled in real time than probably any other human being in all of history. This is the man who got closer to Jesus Christ, but also understood, because of his own weakness, being farther from Jesus Christ than almost anyone else has ever had the chance to experience and, and be aware of. Okay, Peter is, Peter is the one who God granted the revelation among the disciples. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And, and Jesus told Peter that he would, be, he would be given the keys to the kingdom, and not in the sense that Peter's sort of this elevated Christian who attains a special spiritual status, but in the sense that Peter's going to be the man who brings the gospel to the Jewish world. And then Peter's also going to be the man who brings the gospel to the Gentile world. Peter, in a very real sense, brought the gospel to the world. More so than anyone else, Paul would come along and, and build on what had already happened. But Peter started it, in, in, uh, in, not in his own strength, but the Lord used Peter to, to sort of initiate the birth of the church. Peter's the first evangelist after the resurrection. In his first sermon, 3,000 people get saved. He's one of the first people to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to speak with the gift of tongues. He's going to travel all over the world. He's going to spread the gospel. He's going to be crucified upside down because of what he believes. He's one of the most amazing spiritual men we have a history of, and he's also one of the most human spiritual men we have a history of, right? We see all these great accolades. Peter's also the guy, you know, Jesus said, hey, God is giving you revelation. And then in Jesus' next paragraph, he called Peter the devil because Peter could just, he could walk with the Lord and he could walk in his own flesh and he could just pivot back and forth super hard. Peter could tell the Lord, look, if every other disciple denies you, I will not deny you. And Jesus could say, actually, you will. And Peter would, would become a coward in the presence of a teenage girl. As, as a guy who church history records him as the big fisherman. So we don't know exactly what his size was, but he's known as the big guy. Okay? Uh, and actually, if you read in John, the end of his epistle, he brings up a net full of large fish that has, I think, 120-some-odd fish in it. Each one of the large fish is two and a half pounds. Peter can single-handedly haul up about three to four hundred pounds of goods by himself. Peter's a big guy. And he gets he gets terrified by a teenage girl, and yet he gets restored uh, because after the resurrection, Jesus comes and says, "Hey, basically, you know, don't don't hang on your own strength, but I'm still here, and I still want this relationship with you, and I still want you to." be part of what I've called you to be. And Peter then experiences restoration. So before you even say chapter 1, verse 1, once you say 
Second Peter, we already need to understand there's a certain context coming to us in this book, and that is we're getting, uh, we're getting a man who has walked with the Lord on a level that, most, that we don't understand, or, or with a, just a, a proximity and a closeness and an intensity that we have a hard time wrapping our heads around, and he's writing a letter to the church. Okay, and it's his, uh, it's sort of his last will and testament. It's the last book we have that Peter writes. And so there's a sense of urgency on Peter's part where he wants to be really careful to say important things. Um, but he's interesting where, as Peter, he's writing this book towards the end of his life, Peter's definition of what are the really important things is very intriguing. And that's part of why this book is so powerful, I think, because it, it really helps us understand what is, what is the mark of a mature Christian. If you want to be a mature Christian, Peter is writing this as sort of the definition of a mature Christian at the end of his life, saying, hey, here's what you ought to do. If we want to grow up in Christianity and become well-discipled, effective believers of Jesus Christ, this book is a phenomenal place to start. Um, Incidentally, you'll have some people, uh, it's kind of a new hip trend to say that Peter didn't actually write the book of 2 Peter. And people who say that, will say the style is different from 1 Peter, and that's true. And they'll say it's also very similar to Jude, which is also true. Um, that's absolutely no reasons to say that Peter didn't write the book of 2 Peter, because we've, if you have done a letter to someone for maybe a birthday and a college paper, you understand that it's possible to write with different writing styles, right? And if you've ever uh, been asked to teach a lesson, you also understand the fine art of stealing from other people's Sources, and calling it research, right? So the fact that Peter and Jude have some similarities doesn't mean that, uh, that this book is not inspired by God. And, and it's, it's interesting because there's sort of a new trend of saying that Second Peter isn't written by Peter. And one of the things that Second Peter is all about is beware of false prophets and false teachers who will come in and come against the word of God. So it's, it's actually being fulfilled. The book is being fulfilled by the critics of the book. But he opens up. Chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. You could overthink this, or you could say, maybe the guy who wrote down Simon Peter wrote the letter. To those who have obtained a like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he identifies himself as a bondservant and an apostle, and the order matters. Because an apostle is a messenger, a person who is sent to, to proclaim the gospel. But a bondservant is a servant. A person who's actually a, a, a slave, sort of by choice, by, not by compulsion. A person who says, I understand that in a sort of what feels like a backward sense, being a slave to this person makes me more free than being free in any other context. And Peter's identifying that. I'm a servant of Christ first, and then I'm a messenger of Christ. He's not pushing for the big stuff and ignoring the little stuff. Peter says, I'm a servant, and then I'm a messenger. And this book is written to those who have obtained a like precious faith. If you have obtained the same faith that Peter did, if you can say like Peter to, to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then this book is written for you. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So much like Paul in his letters, 
Peter starts off and says, hey, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. But he adds an interesting thing here, and this is really one of, the, I think, the most profound and encouraging verses in all Scripture. He says that God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that's profound because if you understand that, then here's what it means. It means you don't have to add anything. And, and we can look at our lives and say, well, you know, I just don't have enough of this, or I don't have enough education, or enough uh, boldness, or enough confidence, or enough whatever, or enough money, or, or anything. And he says, you know what? God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. God does not, has not called you to something that you will then say, wow, God, that really caught you by surprise, didn't he? He'll say, yeah, sorry, I guess I thought you were more qualified. Um, shoot, that's not going to happen. Because God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Do you want to walk in godliness? It's available to you. Do you want to walk a victorious life? It's available to you. But he specifies, and he says it's available through the knowledge of him who called us. You have everything you need for life and godliness, but it's through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You have everything you need through knowing Jesus. And hold on to that thought because he's going to get into the next chunk and he's going to, he's going to build on that and expand it. And he says, but, verse 5, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, but for this reason, because God has given you everything that pertains to life and godliness, you should be adding to your faith. And he's not saying add in the sense of your faith is incomplete. He's saying these things should be, should be things that you desire to walk in as an appropriate response of your faith. But what are these things? These things all come with a promise, okay? He says, if these things are yours and abound, you will not be barren or unfruitful. So a, mat a mature Christian, Peter, towards the end of his life, is writing a letter to the church and saying, if you want to be neither barren nor unfruitful, or if you want to be fruitful and fertile, and you want your life and your ministry to have an abundance to them, then have these things abound in your life. Peter identifies these as the marks of a mature Christian. And notice what they are, and notice what they aren't. He says, add to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. What are these? These are character qualities. These are not actions. And these are not uh, quantifiable. There is no point in this list at which you can say, got it, score 10 out of 10 on virtue, I'm done. 
Got my self-control down. We're set. Moving on to, okay, covered that one. And now it's time to work on perseverance. This isn't, this isn't a list of you accomplish this and get through it. These are character traits. And notice what he didn't say. Notice what he didn't peg as the mark of a mature Christian. He didn't say go to Bible college. Or make sure you evangelize all the lost. Make sure you translate the Bible into every language. Make sure you speak in tongues. Are those things important? Yeah, they're important. They're an important part of walking in the Christian life. But, but, but external acts will not produce fruitfulness in the Christian life. All right? Growing in what the Lord is calling us to will produce the external acts. If you, if you want to evangelize more effectively, add virtue and self-control and perseverance. And evangelism will come as a result of that. But if you add evangelism on its own front, that will not make you have more self-control. That will not make you love more effectively. Right? Whatever the thing is, and sometimes as Christians, we all have different desires for sort of a big external, whatever that might be. But the mark of a mature Christian is someone who keeps growing in really what you could define as very basic things. And he elaborates. He says, you won't be barren or unfruitful in what? In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important, a couple of things here. First of all, when he says, add to your faith knowledge, that word is the Greek word gnosis, which is more of an experiential knowledge. So he's not saying, add to your faith facts about God. No, those aren't bad, right? It's good to know facts. It's good to know, um, you know, if somebody says, hey, where's that passage in Scripture where... You know, Uzziah gets struck with leprosy. It's, it's okay to know who Uzziah is and know roughly where that passage is and say, I know it's, uh, it's on the left-hand column for me. You know, that's okay. Knowing facts is not bad, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about knowing, right? Knowing something. And, and on a deep experiential level. Don't just know about Christ. Know Christ. And he says, if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about this for a second. He said in verse 3, that God's divine power has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ. And then he tells us, if you add these things to your faith, not in the sense that your faith is lacking, but in the sense that you're responding to the faith that you're walking in, you will not be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So he's building a circle here. Okay, he says, God has given you everything you need that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ. If you do these things, you will have more knowledge of Christ. And then you will be in a position to receive more of what you need for life and godliness, and then you will have more of a knowledge of Christ. And as you add a greater knowledge of Christ to your life, you'll then be better equipped to walk in Life and godliness. And as you are better equipped to walk in life and godliness, you'll be better equipped to know Christ more. And it never stops. You can get on that circle. Truth is like a, a circle. A, a, a truly truthful, capital T, fact just perpetuates forever. Knowing Christ more enables you to know Christ more. Peter, as the old guy, as the old big guy, is writing a letter to a church saying, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to know Jesus Christ. And that's the mark of maturity in the Christian life. He says, if you lack these things, you're short-sighted. There are Christians who just have no interest in adding self-control to their life. No interest in, 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 in reigning in their flesh. 
They're Christians who have no interest in persevering through hard times. They're Christians who have no interest in having brotherly kindness. And you know what they are? They are barren and they are unfruitful. And it's not to say they're not saved, but it is to say they are wasting a lot of energy and a lot of opportunities and a lot of life. And Peter says, don't do that. Don't miss this. Don't waste the opportunity. God has given you a life and he's called you to something and it's actually remarkably simple. He said, come to know Christ and the more you know him, the easier it will be to know him. It's it's so profound, it's simple, and it's so simple, it's profound. And he says in verse 10, to make your call an election. Sure, he says basically make sure you're saved. And it's kind of this idea of like, well, wait a second. In a sense, he's saying don't overthink this whole thing, okay? Because sometimes we say, well, wait a second. You know, you read James where he's talking about demonstrate your faith by your works. Like, does that mean if I don't have works, I'm not saved? It's 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 a horribly stupid question. Because the question is not, what can I get away with and still be a Christian? The question is, how can I best demonstrate and live out the fact that I've been saved by Jesus Christ? So, you know, like, you don't have to, you know, you shouldn't come and say, okay, like, how many girlfriends can I have and still be a faithful husband? That, that shouldn't really be the question you're asking, right? It should be like, how can I be the best husband possible or the best parent or whatever, you know, pick your relationship that you're discussing. It shouldn't be, how close can I get to not being it? Or how close can I get to being awful at it and still be good at it? It should be, how can I be the best? Okay? He says, don't, so make your call on election. Sure, if you're like, wow, I, just, I don't know if I feel like adding these things, but maybe that'll make me not a Christian, just shut up and, and get to know Christ. And, and quit worrying about how close can I get to not walking with the Lord or how much can I worry about the externals instead of the character qualities that God is calling me to. Just add these things to your life. And then watch your life bear fruit in the knowledge of Christ. You'll know Christ more, and then you will know that you know Christ. So verse 12, he goes on, and he says, For this reason, because of all these things, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. I'm going to remind you guys of these things. Evidently, Peter had told, had, it was kind of a thing he liked to talk about. End of verse 12, though you know and are established in the present truth. Verse 13, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. He says, guys, you already know this. I'm going to tell you again. And in fact, I'm going to write it down so that you can remember it after I'm dead. That's what he's saying. You know what we're doing tonight? We're remembering it after he's dead. He died about, about 2,000 years ago. That's a long time. You know what we're doing? We're still reading it. And you know what they're still doing? These words are still carrying out power because they're still penned by the Holy Spirit writing through Peter. But he says, I'm going to remind you of these things. It's okay to be reminded of the basics. And this is, again, important to understand in the context of mature Christianity because sometimes we think that mature Christians are the ones who understand all the nuances of all the miscellaneous doctrines, and they can explain to me the difference between hermeneutics and homilies and exegesis and exegetesis, and I don't even know what some of those phrases mean. Right? I remember somebody came to our church one time, true story, and I'm meeting them, and they're like, and I'm like you know, how'd you find this? Like, well, I looked you up because you're, you're a Calvary Chapel and you guys do um, exegetical teaching, and I said, that sounds about right. And I was like, I don't remember yeah, we're probably an exegetical church. I don't know. I mean, sure, if, if that's what you wanted, if that's what you're thinking, I mean, yeah, that's, that's probably what we're doing. Um, 
But man, sometimes we think mature Christianity means you understand all these little things. Peter says, you know what mature Christianity is? It's you understand the fundamentals. Maturity is not complexity, right? Maturity is Jesus loves me. That's the mark of a mature Christian is they understand that. It's not about understanding random heresies in the church. It's about understanding Jesus Christ loves me, and I know it because the Word of God tells me, right? That's mature Christianity right there. And Peter says, I'm going to remind you of the basics. Don't ever be ashamed of the basics. Don't ever be ashamed of going back to the basics. And you'll meet Christians who, are, who want to have these whole long conversations about, well, what about this? And can you lose your salvation? And do you have to be baptized to be saved? And you know what? I know that Jesus Christ loves me. And I know that he died for me. And he came back to life. And he said, if I believed in him, I could live with him forever. And I want to do that. That is the mark of maturity in a Christian life. Don't don't sell yourself short by thinking it needs to be more complex than that. Verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as the light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is as many private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, I'm reminding you of these things and I am speaking authoritatively because I have been an eyewitness. And I am not writing these things because I wish they were true. I'm not writing these things because I hope they are true or I feel like they are true. I'm writing these things because I know that they are true. He says, we were eyewitnesses. Peter is one of three people in human history who got to watch Jesus Christ briefly pull back the veil that was shielding his glory on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration and expose himself. And he was standing there on the mountain with Moses and Elijah, and Peter, James, and John got to see that. And Peter, being remarkably human, kind of bungled the whole situation and made himself look like an idiot, but that's okay. We still love him for it. But he says, we were eyewitnesses. We saw Jesus Christ, and we knew he wasn't just Jesus, he was Christ. It's his title. It's not his last name, it's his title. Christ, the King. We didn't think he was king, we knew he was king. And we, were not, we weren't following cute fables or, or good stories or positive messaging. We were following truth. And, and so you, we have the prophetic word confirmed. Peter said, I got to watch the prophecies be fulfilled in front of me. And so I believe it, and so I am warning you to grow up and be mature in your Christianity. Peter takes this pretty seriously. In fact, he takes it so seriously that he's going to die for this. Okay, Peter, Peter's going to be crucified. His wife's going to be killed right before he dies. Uh, they threaten to kill his wife, and he says, Woman, remember the Lord. He's not, he's not hiding anything. Peter's not believing Christianity because it makes him feel good. This is, this is true. Okay? And so Christianity says it's not about do I wish it was true. It's about this is fact. 
And he says, and this is important because we'll get into this in chapters 2 and 3. He says, we have the prophetic word confirmed. We've got to see the prophecy confirmed. We've got to see the prophecies confirmed. Peter was a guy who got to go back in, in Scripture and read it and realize, oh my gosh, it was talking about that night. It was talking about that day, and I was there for it, right? Now understand, that drove Peter to say, I want to grow up in Christ, and I want to be mature. Now understand something else, and this is important for us. We are getting to do the same thing in our lives, okay? We are alive right now in an incredible time in human history, and we are getting to watch prophecies from the Scriptures be fulfilled. Okay, Ezekiel 37 is a prophecy about Israel becoming a nation again. If you were born before 1948, you were alive for that prophecy. Isaiah, I forget the chapter, has a prophecy about Damascus no longer being a city. We're in the process right now on planet Earth of watching that prophecy be fulfilled. Damascus is the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. I have friends who live in Saudi Arabia who can remember vacationing in Damascus as kids. And nobody goes to Damascus today. Damascus is dead. Now, it's a question of exactly how literally is the Lord going to fulfill that prophecy? I don't know, but it's in the process of being fulfilled right now. And yes, I do get a little fired up about prophecy. That's why I love Ezekiel 38 and 39, because I think it may very well be the next prophecy that we're going to see fulfilled on earth. And so that does sort of fire me up a little bit. But it's, it's not just because, oh, this is cool, this is interesting, and I have an inside scoop. I don't have an inside scoop. What I have is the same thing that Peter had, which is a sense of urgency of, I have gotten to watch the Word of God come to life before my eyes, and that is driving me to live appropriately, to live with passion and with purpose, and to clarify my vision and my goals in my life. I do not want to waste this life. I have a very short window of opportunity. I do not want to get to the end of my life and say, wow, I wish I would have paid a little more attention. I want to live it out to the full because I've gotten to watch and to know that the word of God is truth. And it's truth that impacts me. And I want to be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. And so I want to take this seriously. We should all want to take this seriously. So we get to chapter 2. And chapter 2, he's going to switch gears. Chapter 1 is about the fundamentals of mature Christianity. Chapter 2, he's now going to switch into a warning about false teachers. Because what's more fun to talk about than heresy, right? And false teaching. Woo! Uh, but he's, he's encouraging the church to grow up. And now with that, there's a warning. Because there will be people who don't like what he says. So chapter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. So Peter warns us, he says, false teachers are here, and they are coming. And it's a statement that you could wish wasn't true, but it is. False teachers come into the church, and they have goals, and they have desires. And he elaborates, and he's going to elaborate through chapter 2 what they are. But understand, he says, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. 
If you're trying to understand if someone a false teacher, well, we'll get into this a little more in just a bit. You always follow the desire. What does someone want out of what they're telling me? And false teachers are always covetous. They always want something out of you. Right? And it might be glory, it might be money, it might be power, it might be just attention. Oftentimes, there's sort of uh, a lot of false teaching eventually gets into some weird sexual components, and it might be whatever. But it's always, there's always just a little bit of covetousness wrapped in there. So if you're having a conversation with somebody and they start telling you something, you're like, wait a second, this sounds like you're just trying to get something. It's okay to sort of tap the brakes and say, you know, that, that sounds like covetousness. And if they say, oh, you're right. Wow, I'm sorry, would you pray for me not be covetous? Then go for it. They say, no, 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 no. It's not covetousness. It's just walking in fulfillment of what I was supposed to have or something equally creepy. I don't know. Uh, they're probably a lot smoother than that. But, but he's going to warn us about false teachers, and he's also going to encourage us about how to be aware of them, how to not be afraid of them, and then how to deal with uh, false teaching when it arises. So verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the ungodly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially for those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So false teachers will come, and, and the sort of the short, down and dirty version is, don't sweat it, because God will take care of it. Okay? He says, you know what? There are a lot of false teachers in the time of Noah. God knew how to save Noah and judge the world. He didn't, like, slip up and judge some of the, you know, like, oh, shoot, well, 96% rate is, you know, not bad, <laughs> Friendly fire. No, no, God, God got exactly what he needed. The righteous were delivered and the wicked were judged. A lot in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, same deal. He says he delivered righteous lot. And it's interesting, we talk about this on, uh, on Sunday as we're in Hebrews 11. When you read the New Testament's commentary on the Old Testament characters, you're forced to reckon with the fact that God is way more merciful than we oftentimes think he is. Right? Have, you, have you read the story of Lot in Sodom? If I had to pick a word to describe Lot, righteous would not be the first one I would come up with. Right? I mean, like, we're going to get to Genesis in probably about three months, maybe four months on Wednesday nights. We'll get to Lot, and we'll read his story, and you'll say, that guy has got some serious problems. Yes, he does. So he's got some problems that you go to jail for. Um, but the Lord identifies him as righteous. Why? Because Lot eventually put his trust in God for his deliverance and let go of his trust in himself. And the Lord says, you know what? That's righteousness right there. You receive my promise by faith, you're righteous. 
God is not righteous because of what he did. He's righteous because of who he believed. And so we reckon with the fact that God is incredibly gracious, but also with the fact that God deals with justice, but he also rescues the righteous from judgment. Now, we'll get into this more over the next couple months as we get into the book of Revelation, but this passage here and others like it are one of the major reasons why I believe that prophetically we will experience what's called a pre-tribulation rapture, where before the Lord judges the earth in the great tribulation, all the Christians will be raptured out. They will be taken up to heaven because throughout the scriptures, whenever God pours out judgment, he makes a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. And we're not righteous because of what we do. We're just like Lot. It has nothing to do with what we do. It is only because of the God who saves us. But before God pours out wrath, he separates and he distinguishes between these people trust me, these people don't. And so consequently, there's a different level of protection that we're given by the Lord. And so I believe that he's going to remove us before the great tribulation. And he says, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. And so we don't have to worry, like, oh my gosh, God's going to deal with all teaching, but does that mean that we're going to get burned up too? And oh my gosh, God's going to, you know, I mean, we look at a situation like our own country right now that is walking in so much flagrant wickedness, and you can't be a biblical Christian and not realize that we are, uh, that our nation will be judged by God. You can't murder 60 million babies and then say, oh, it's no big deal. You can't mutilate the genitalia of your children and then say, oh, it's no big deal. You can't, you can't despise and dishonor every old person in your society and try and relegate them to private communities so you don't have to worry about them and say, oh, it's no big deal. Our nation is, is, is in a dangerous position, not economically, spiritually, because we deserve the judgment of God, and God will not be unjust in his judgment. He will be just. But sometimes we look at that and say, wow, judgment's coming. I hope I make it out okay. Because what if, you know, I mean, like, what if we default on the national debt, and then my 401k crashes, and then, you know, like, oh my gosh, and then, uh, <gasps> I should buy gold, and, uh, oh, you know, those MRE meals, those would be really helpful, and Boy, if I got to get a gun, would it be better be an AR or a shotgun? Because sometimes, you know, shotguns, if there's an adrenaline rush in a combat situation, you don't pump it all the way, and maybe an AR would be better. <sighs> I need to take yoga. Um, sometimes we get, like, all worked up over, are we going to survive? And Peter says, you know what? Remember this. God is in control. So the first thing, when false teachers come, when false teaching comes, when, when nations and leaders and people walk away, God is still in control. Verse 12, though, he's going to go on. He says, But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness, as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So now, so he kind of started off making an uh, explanation about false teachers sort of outside the church. And now he's dialing in a bit to talk about false teachers inside the church. And he says, these are spots and blemishes, 
in your church. There are stains on the church. They have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. They have hearts that are trained in covetous practices. False teachers are not, you know, we kind of made the joke about it. They're not, they're not like creepy carnival guys. They're not guys who, are try- who look like they're trying to be smooth. They're guys who are so smooth that you don't know that they're smooth. They can use you so well that you don't know that you're being used, apart from the fact that the Holy Spirit is inside you, giving you discernment to say, I don't know what it is, but there's something weird going on right here. Right? But, but he's, under, he's explaining false teachers are going to come into the church. And specifically, some of the marks of false teaching is covetousness, eyes full of adultery, just desiring, desiring to feed their flesh. And he says they, they're following the way of Balaam. Balaam is an Old Testament character who was actually a prophet who spoke for God. He, he, he truly received words of prophecy from the one true God. And the one true God eventually killed him because Balaam wanted to take the words of God to make sure he got his own glory and to build his own empire and his own little money scheme. He wanted to use a gift that God had given him to exploit people for his own benefit. And so God's one of the marks of false teaching. Sooner or later, follow the money, follow the glory. Just, just kind of like, where, where, does this, where does this lead? If this leads to... I just don't want to be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, then they might be weird. There's a lot of weird people in the world. You know, that's, that's cool. But if it's, no, I'm, I'm using the gifts God gave me to take care of myself, that's false teaching right there. And he goes on, verse 18, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So again, false teachers, he says, they're going to allure you through the lust of the flesh. One of the hallmarks of false teaching is it says, that isn't really sin. False teaching, sooner or later, is about, we're going to take a sin that we want to have, our little pet sin, and we're going to find a way to make sure that we can excuse it. Right, And you see this. There's, there's all kinds of it happening in the church right now. You see it with, with big-name pastors. Okay, You see it with guys like Andy Stanley who are, who are starting to excuse all kinds of weird sin because it's, you know what, it, you know, it's still Jesus and it's, it's still good, and, but you know, we don't want to offend anybody. We want to be nice. And so we're, you know, this sin is different. This sin is special. Not every Christian can experience victory over the sin, and so we don't want to make anybody feel unsafe or unwelcome in our church. You know what that does? It says God is not capable of helping you walk in victory. If, if, if you use false teaching as a means to excuse sin, what you are saying is that God has not given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. You're saying God is insufficient, he is incomplete, and he needs your awesomeness to complete the picture. 
Do you realize how insulting that is to God? And we can look at sort of, you know, big names or big churches and say, oh yeah, those guys. What about our own hearts? Because sometimes we're our own false teachers, right? Sometimes we, oh, I know that's a sin. My gosh, there's so much political energy driving to say that's not a big deal. I know that's a big deal because I'm a real Christian, right? Like I'm, I'm, you know, actually kind of an awesome Christian. Uh, I'm an exegetical Christian. Um, you know, like I know these, uh, that's sin right there. But, but my bitterness is different, right? Like my bitterness is not the same as sexual immorality. It's just like I was hurt. I was wounded. That, that's a, this is a different situation, okay? And Peter says, no, it's actually not. Right? So, so be careful. Yes, be aware of false teachers who are coming into the church collectively. But be aware of false teaching that you allow to anchor in your own heart. And, and you can tell, is this excusing sin in my life? Is this giving me grounds to walk in covetousness or to walk in, in adultery? Uh, even if it's not physical adultery, adultery of my heart. If those things are happening, that's false teaching. And it needs to be rooted out of your life. So chapter 3, it's a short chapter, but it's a zinger. So, he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. Do you ever wonder why we call it Second Peter? Right there. In both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But... The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire, fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. He says, I want you, I'm writing this to you that you may be mindful of the words that were spoken. I'm writing this so that you'll pay attention to the Bible, in essence, is what he's saying. And he says, I want you to know this. You warned us about false teachers. Now he's going to warn us about something different. He says, scoffers are going to come. Mockers are going to come in the last days. And specifically, they're going to mock something. And it's really, really interesting what Peter says because Peter outlines 21st century American culture profoundly. He says, they're going to say, since the beginning of time, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He says, scoffers will come and say, God isn't real. All of human history is just this long strand of time of Billions and billions of years of gradual evolution. And they, he says, they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the word of, by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water, in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. He says, they willfully forget that there was a global flood. Now, again, we'll get there in Genesis. We're going to be there in just a couple months. But the Bible gives us a historical narrative that it claims is truth. And that is that God created the world right about 6,000 years ago. And that about 4,000 years ago, there was a global worldwide flood that God used as a means of judgment against the wickedness of the world. Now, what's interesting is if you want to look at it from a scientific standpoint of what, what, what's the data that we have that's observable and testable and repeatable and can we use a scientific method to determine a 
a viable means of, of estimating the age of the earth, if you want to be completely objective, that viewpoint is actually insanely believable. I mean, the, the, the evidence that the entire earth at one point in time was underwater is incredible. If you've ever flown, just practically, you don't have to be a, a smart guy or a scientist. You don't have to have initials after your name. Uh, you fly in a plane, and you look over at pretty much anywhere in the world, and what does it look like? A floodplain. If you've lived by a creek bed that has gone up and gone down in an April rain, you've seen what mud looks like when it gets carved by water. Rock all over our world looks just like that. And he says, scoffers are going to come, this is, and this is really interesting, and this is really important. He says, they're going to come, and they're going to willfully deny that a, that a global flood ever existed. And here's, and understand why. People don't deny the flood because it's an it's a f- interesting geological observation, okay? Because that's not really what the flood was. The flood is not an interesting event in natural history. Oh, it is. But what is the flood? The flood is the judgment of God. And if I acknowledge the flood, I have to acknowledge that God takes sin seriously. If I acknowledge that God created the world, then I have to acknowledge that God has the authority to implement a moral code. Right? If if I say God is capable of saying, I made the world, then, then by extension, God is capable of saying, here are the rules. If God can say, I am judging the world, then God can say, I will judge it again. And so, the scoffers in our world do not deny that God created the world. They don't deny a global flood because they don't have evidence. They're not interested in evidence. They have no interest in evidence. This is not a rational debate. And it's important to understand that. This is a willful exercise in ignorance. Because the world does not want to admit that God takes sin seriously. Because if he takes sin seriously, then all of a sudden that means I am in trouble. And I can't hide behind myself anymore. I need his help. If the flood is real, my pride dies. That's why the world has a hang-up with the global flood. And so scoffers will come and they'll say, oh my gosh, you know, the world just keeps going on and on and on and there's all these things. But understand, the idea of evolution is not a scientific idea. It's a religious idea. Evolution... As a as sort of a natural history theory, says that you can have mutations that add information. That's genetically impossible. The most basic assumption about evolution is not physically possible. Okay, but evolution is not a scientific idea. It's a religion. Evolution says we can ascend, we can get better, we can grow stronger. And if you trace it back, you go back in, in the book of Ezekiel. We're told about when Satan fell, and what did Satan say? He said, I will ascend. Ken Graves says, evolution is the original false religion. It's when Satan said, I will become like God. I will go up. And God said, you don't get to go up. And evolution is this idea that we just, we go up. Right? Human beings, and you're hearing it right now all, all the time, especially with the development of things like AI and some of the talk about transhumanism. We're just we're ready to take the next step in human evolution. And what do they really mean? They mean we're going to start playing God. Why? Because if we can convince ourselves that God isn't real, then we no longer have moral responsibility. 
Evolution is a religious idea, and it defies Christianity. It doesn't defy. It flies in the face of Christianity because Christianity says you don't get better, you get worse. Christianity says you are not getting better. You are on a slide into hell. And there might be more reforms. There might be different governments that maybe slow that down a little bit. But the whole world is going to hell. And you are getting worse. You are getting more sinful. You are getting more depraved. You are walking farther away from God. You cannot save yourselves. But I will come down and save you. Okay? Evolution as a religious idea says we can get to God. Christianity says you cannot get to God, so I will come down. So understand, when the scoffers of the world say the flood could not have happened, it is not a geological argument. It's a theological argument because they do not want to accept that God can judge the world. But verse 8, he says, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the, day, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Don't forget this. Peter says, God is not in a hurry. And that's important to remember, because sometimes we watch the world and we're like, this whole thing is like picking up at an accelerated rate, and we are about to blow ourselves out of the sky, right? But God's not in a hurry. To the Lord... A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. That means, in the Lord's mind, Peter wrote this book about two days ago. Okay, well, that's, uh, you know, not super, like, dramatic. Maybe we should just kind of chill. But also, so the Lord's not in a hurry. The Lord isn't, isn't slack. The Lord isn't being lazy in, in, in delaying his return. What is he being? He's being patient. Because there are still more people to be saved. There are more people, there are still people trapped under false teaching who he wants to see come to freedom. There are still people believing lies who he wants to believe the truth. And so don't get discouraged when you feel like the Lord's taking a long time because remember this, a thousand years is like a day. So the Lord's not in a rush, but a day is like a thousand years. The Lord can do a thousand years worth of work in one day. Which is really encouraging because there are hearts that I think would take more than a thousand years to soften. Right? There are relationships that will take more than a thousand years to fix. The Lord says, well, if it takes 2,000 years to fix that relationship, give me 48 hours. We'll crunch this baby out. Right? Like, like that's cool. So there's no, there's no rush. Right? Part of, the, part of the maturity, again, you know, this is a book about being a mature Christian. Hey, be serious. Be mature. Take it seriously. Do not, do not get lazy at the end. Finish the race well, but you know what? God's still in control. This is written by Peter, right? The guy who, like, the whole way through Jesus' ministry is like, okay, is it time? Is it time? Come on, come on, come on. Like, just tell me, like, tell me, like, I'm the awesomest disciple, right? I just need to hear those words. Like, I'm the best, right? Like, and when you come in power, am I in charge? Like, I'm thinking this is, like, because, I mean, it, you know, it's you, then me, and then the 11 losers, right? I mean, disciples. Um, so, like, what's the plan? And even after Jesus is resurrected, and he's getting, they say, hey, are you going to bring the kingdom right now? And he's like, I don't know what exactly Jesus' emotional face was at that point, but I'm like, we've been covering this for three years, right? Like, no. Peter was ready for God to go. And he says, hey, remember? God's got this, right? So if you're impatient, so was Peter. But God is, God is in control. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which 
and the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How should the return of Christ shape your life? He says. And it's a great question. What manner of person ought you to be? And it's a good one to, to think about here. It's a good one to go back and pray about. Just chew on it for a couple of days. If the Lord is coming back quickly, how should that change my life? And, and, and then the flip side, do I live like I think the Lord is coming back quickly? Or do I live like, ah, I got time. I'll fix that later. I'll apologize later. I'll repent later. I'll be responsible later. I'll grow up later. The Lord's not coming back yet. Gosh dang it, that was 2,000 years ago. They're still talking about it. They've been talking about the rapture since the 70s. I mean, for crying out loud. Like, you know, like, this is just not happening. Hey, you know what? What manner of person ought you to be? Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, being diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. He says, okay, guys, be diligent to be found in peace. Be diligent. Remember, remember this is Peter's last letter. He's writing it to encourage us to mature and grow up. So he says, guys, I want you to be diligent in something. I'm like, okay, come on, come on, give it to us. I want you to be diligent to be found by Jesus in peace. Work hard to make sure that you're at rest. Labor to have peace. Make sure that when Jesus comes, you're at peace, not stressing out. That's, what, that's Peter's exhortation to us. How do you do that? Think about this for a second. How do you get that peace? Through grace, right? We said it all through Paul's epistles, grace and peace. The order matters. So Peter says, be diligent to be found in peace. How do you get peace? By grace. How do you get grace? Well, it says here that God's divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness and the knowledge of him. It says, if you add to your faith virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love, you will not be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's a tie-in, right? Be diligent to be found by him in peace and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. God's patience is somebody's rescue. Right? I mean... God's patient, and it's interesting because he told us to pray that he would come back quickly. And so we should be praying that he would come back quickly. But else says, hey, if I don't come back in your time frame, that's okay because there's somebody I'm waiting on. Right? The Lord, the Lord knows how to save his people. And that's a massive comfort to us. And so he says here, as also, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles. He says, this is the kind of stuff Paul talks about, guys. Speaking of them, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, 
which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destructions, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You've got to love Peter. He's like, you know, Paul writes the scripture. I mean, some of Paul's letters are kind of confusing, but he is writing scripture. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away, uh, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So, beware, lest you fall from your own steadfastness. Be a mature Christian, grow up, but do it by knowing Jesus Christ. Right? This book, and that's why I love Second Peter so much, it's so profound because it is so basic. Jesus Christ loves us. And we just need to know that. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Peter. God, his testimony of someone who was so human, and yet you used him. And God, we are so human, and yet you use us. And it has nothing to do with what we deserve, but it has to do with the fact that you are a good God. And so we thank you for that, Lord. And we do want to grow up. We do not want to be immature believers. We don't want to be led astray by false teaching. We don't want to make excuses for sin. We want to know Jesus Christ more. We want to, when, when someone dies for us, we want to know the story. We want to know the, the kind of love that you would have for us. We want to experience it, not just know the facts. We want to know you more. And I pray that you would do that, that you would, that you would fill our hearts with a hunger that just burns and grows, that as we learn more, we would desire more. That we would be people who long for you. And Lord, we thank you that your, your patience is salvation, and yet you told us to pray that you would come back. And so we pray, God, that you would hurry. Bring us home. We are, we are excited to go. We can't wait to see you and be with you. And so we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ our very soon returning King. Amen.